sorry, Ephesians, that's Ephesians chapter 4. So the text this morning is Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. I'll begin reading from verse 1 through verse 16. This also is God's holy word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of God's word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the high standard that you have given us. Father, we pray acknowledging how much it is that we need humility, that we need gentleness and meekness that we need patience and forbearance with one another in love. Father, we pray that we would desire to keep, that we would desire to maintain uh, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We pray, Father, that we would see uh, one another as part of a body, much like a human body, that there are many parts, that all the parts are necessary. Father, we pray that we would be concerned for one another. We pray, Father, that you would guard that no bitter root would spring up and cause many to be defiled. Father, we acknowledge that Satan often works uh, finding the disgruntled, uh, finding those who are disenfranchised. Father, we pray that we would desire to be one people, that we uh, would have Uh, love for one another, that we would treasure one another, that above all things that we would treasure our Lord Jesus Christ when we worship. Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know you in a saving way, we pray, Father, that you would do the mighty work of conversion. Father, we 
pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be high and lifted up, and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> the concept of unity today <clears throat> seems to be so lacking, so missing, especially within the last two years or so. We think about how uh, factious our society is, our nation is, the deplorable state of affairs, no charity, no compassion, no benefit of the doubt, no mutual respect for others who disagree with you, who have uh, even the slightest difference of opinion. Here, we think about how the, the world pr promotes isolation. They promote cruelty to those who disagree with you. In the political realm, the slander and the reviling of your opponents without mercy, that these uh, methods and these practices, <clears throat> these ways are brought so readily into the church. You think about how there's so many things that can divide us, but the question is, what unites us? Have you forgotten that? Has, has the stuff in the background, the, the secondary, tertiary things, have we allowed those things to become primary? You think about the congregation and the issues that have come up even within the last few years. Views about COVID, views about global warming or the economy, views about race relations and the culture, school choices for children. Are those things becoming primary in our hearts? Or is Jesus Christ front and center? Is he the one that we worship? Are we able to say, we agree that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that he is worthy of our worship because he indeed is God, and all those other things, <clears throat> we're free to disagree on them. We can do so with mutual respect for one another. Is this how we think? Here, there's something completely countercultural in people who seem to have uh, no commonality and anything else. The, the world marvels at this. We, I've been in places where people have wondered, wow, the three of you come from completely different backgrounds. You have nothing that, are, that is the same. But somehow, the three of you are united in some way we've never seen before. Well, you know what? That unity is found in Jesus Christ. It's by the Holy Spirit. That's unheard of. It's countercultural. Here we think about this book of Ephesians. <clears throat> and how the Apostle Paul is presenting us the glorious Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we think about this mystery. The mystery of what God is doing. The mystery that is revealed in his word. That he is purifying a people for his very own. That Jesus Christ was one who took two. The Jew, the Gentile, and he made them one. We heard about this in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And that the, the mention there about the two becoming one is that they would not continue on as, hey, I'm a Jew and I'm a Gentile and, and this is our primary identity. No, they were made one, a new humanity. And they had a new identity in Jesus Christ. So that <clears throat> instead of focusing on their differences, they were to focus on how they were the same. They both have their identity, our identity, in Jesus Christ. So here we have in this passage 
even as we get to Ephesians chapter 4, may humility and love assist you to keep the Spirit's unity with the goal of peace. May humility and love assist you to keep the Spirit's unity with the goal of peace. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the character and nature of unity. Second, the duty and blessing of unity. And third, the fruit and evidence of unity. So the first point, the character and, dude, character and nature of unity. So this all comes from verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. <clears throat> so we have this transition here in Ephesians chapter 4. The beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 1 through 3 spoke about what God has done for us. That God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who had the plan, the Father had the plan of salvation, that the Son offers up himself, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is renewing God's people, that all three persons of the Trinity are actively involved in your salvation, that these are called the indicatives, what God has done. Ephesians chapter 4 through verse for through chapter 6, these are called the imperatives. Meaning, since God has done this for you, how then should you live? You obviously should live differently, but the question is why? The why is answered in, in Ephesians 1 through 3. And then starting here in Ephesians chapter 4, seems like the first thing on his mind is the topic of unity. That's the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. Here, the Apostle Paul implores the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling in Christ. In verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So the description about the life or the, the walk that is worthy of your calling is that it is one with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So the ultimate goal is that of unity, right? Unity in in the Lord Jesus, unity in the Spirit. But those are impossible without humility and gentleness, patience and forbearance. Here, the Apostle Paul is not trying to produce merely a behavioral change. He's describing a radical transformation in God's people. The radical transformation will, will have the effect of a behavioral change, but he's not primarily looking to alter behavior. He's talking about how there is a new creation, and because of the new creation inside, it produces a change outside. It's a change of lordship. When before, we lived for ourselves, we gloried in ourselves, we served ourselves, we had a master of ourselves, and we're told that we have a new master now. No longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. That there's a reason why there's a new master. The reason is because that master died on your behalf. He paid the price to set you free. Here the Apostle Paul also gives the foundation for this unity. Later in chapter 4 here, notice the repetition of one. We worship one God. Then he talks about each of the three persons of the Trinity. There's one Spirit, there's one Lord, and there's one God and Father of all. 
If you talk about unity, what better picture of unity is there than, than the God in three persons, one God, three persons, that the Holy Trinity, forever having perfect fellowship. <clears throat> Here, we think about how the Lord Jesus, as the Son, he submits to the Father, but the submission is not one because of inferiority. That there's nothing in the scriptures that tells us that Jesus is in any way inferior to the Father. We're told that he willingly submits to the Father. He always does what is pleasing to the Father. And yet, the scriptures talk about how he made himself, or he, he was one who was equal with the Father, equal in power and glory. There's no inferiority there. Just, just like in the relationship between a husband and a wife. That there's a willing submission on the part of the wife to her husband. There's nothing in the scripture said about inferiority. The woman is not, woman is not inferior. And you see here in, in the Trinity, there's perfect fellowship and unity. In the world, there are many false notions about unity. <clears throat> Have you heard this one? Uh, unity for unity's sake. Right? So... Uh, the, the goal is unity, but, it, but that goal is so great and so high that they lose sight of the purpose or the reason for unity. What we have in the scriptures here, <clears throat> in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So it's the unity of the spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells God's people. That is what unites us, that God's people have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the unity at all costs. So unity for unity's sake, unity at all costs. This is a call to sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of unity. So you think about going so far as to compromise the gospel for the sake of unity. This is what happens often in denominations where you see this declension, you see a decline, where eventually... <clears throat> They, they have nothing left where, oh, they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they don't believe in the virgin birth. Uh, they don't believe that Jesus will return, right? They don't believe Jesus is the son of God. Well, you think about it, what's, what's left at that point? So you think about the compromise of the gospel for the sake of unity. And it's like, no, we, we have to stay. You think about unity at all costs is no longer unity. It's called tyranny. So should truth be sacrificed for the sake of unity? Perhaps a better question is, as we look even at this letter of Ephesians. In chapter 4 here, the Apostle Paul is speaking about unity in the Spirit. But we ask, well, should we try to follow? Should we try to obey Ephesians chapter 4? But then ignore Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. That's the question about unity at all costs. Well, what about the truth that we're taught in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 about who God is, what he's done, who, who the Son is and what he has done and what the Spirit is doing? Unity at all costs is not what God commands us to do. There's also uh, a common misunderstanding that unity necessarily means uniformity. Here, uniformity is that everything is the same. And that unity does not mean uniformity. And I give you this simple example, simple illustration. The Apostle Paul 
uses many illustrations to describe the body of Christ. It's a household, right? Uh, it's a flock. But it seems like the most common one, and perhaps the Apostle Paul's favorite, is that it is a body, like a human body. And the body has many parts, right? The body, you can't have the one giant head or one giant eyeball. The body won't live. It needs all the separate parts. So uniformity is not what a body has. There's different parts, obviously different, serving different functions. Here, we think also about uh, unity does not mean the complete elimination of minority opinions or alternate views. Especially where God is silent, God has not addressed it in the scriptures, that when God is silent, we ought to be also. If he has not specified right or wrong regarding practice or belief, either specifically or in principle, right? we ought to be silent, meaning we ought not to be dogmatic about those matters. Here, we think about how if we get down to the nuts and bolts, this might sound like compromise on my end, but you think about wrong views, wrong practices. Are all of those things, wrong beliefs, wrong practices, are those all immediately dealt with in an instant? When you think about what the Apostle Paul described here, later in, verse, in, in chapter 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Meaning that if, if we had a door check where all of your beliefs had to be entirely accurate and correct, all of your practices had to be checked immediately, who would be a member of the church? I at least will admit I wouldn't be a member. And you think about how God is one who delights when his people can grow to maturity. This means that we have to have the humility to say we haven't arrived yet. We're not there. This unity also is not mere external unity. External unity might be found in, okay, well, everyone uh, reports to a common earthly head. That everyone uh, is part of this big wide umbrella that's cast. Well, I don't think the description here is about any external unity. It's talking about internal unity. It begins from within because of the gift of the Holy Spirit within us. That there's commonality, that there's a common goal, there's a common love. We see what this unity boils down to. Is that this unity comes by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in Ephesians 2, we're told that Jesus was the one who broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He took the two groups who were the most opposite in extreme. He took the Jew and he took the Gentile. And we're told that he took the two and made them one. 
For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So you think about whatever differences there are. Jew and Gentile can worship in the same church because they're created new in Jesus Christ. The poor and the rich should be able to function in the same church, worshiping the same Jesus. That black and white, that purple and green, whatever color, whatever distinctions there are among people, you have to realize that this unity that comes by the work of Jesus Christ, his work allows us to be one. Here, Jesus was also one who prayed for the unity of his people. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and following, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So you see here Jesus in praying on behalf of his church, his body, future believers. He's asking for unity, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus also promised the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13, and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus promised the sending of the Spirit, and the Spirit came. And then we have the unity that comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one who has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and of death. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The, the unbeliever is the one who knows discord and dissension. They know division and dissolution and destruction and death. This is what the sinner knows. But it's only in Christ only by the Spirit that your mind, my mind, can be set on life and peace. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives life and he teaches new ways about peace and unity. And that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason why you are united to other Christians is because you have the common Holy Spirit. He is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. He is the one who is given to instruct us about Christ's teachings. So this is the first point, the character and nature of unity. We have the second point, the duty and blessing of unity. The duty and blessing. We think first about the blessing of unity. We read earlier in Psalm 133, uh, a psalm of, of David, describing how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So this is 
David describing the scene. I, I don't think he was actually there. It was before his time. He's describing the scene about Aaron being anointed. And in Exodus chapter 30, we have an account of, of the anointing. We have first an account about the anointing oil there in verses 20 to 25. That it contains myrrh and cinnamon and olive oil and a few other things, right? But we see here that in Exodus 30, it specifically says that this oil was not to be used for any other purpose or by any other person, but, but used in, in the, the, temp, the temple and used by the priests for the worship of God. And we're told how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There are things that are good and there are things that are pleasant, but we're told here that this is both good and pleasant. Right? I'll give you an example. Well, it's good. Church discipline is good, but it's never pleasant. Right? You can think about some of these other matters. Right? Certain things are pleasant, but they're not good. And that for brothers to dwell together in unity is both good and pleasant. And David uses two descriptions. One is Aaron's anointing oil running over. That it runs over onto his garment. It runs down his beard. And we think about how the smell, that the Jews would have liked that smell. There was a refreshing smell with a sweet aroma. Have you ever been invited to someone's home? That people who live in the home probably can't detect the aroma because it, it's kind of just works in there and they, they, don't, they can't tell anymore, right? But when you go to someone's home, perhaps, perhaps someone invites you to their home for a meal and then you come in and you immediately smell the delicious food cooking. Well, that's exciting. You're thinking, hey, I get to eat of that good food. And here we, we think about the, the smell, this aroma of the anointing oil. And the description is that unity in a church body has a pleasant aroma. When you see people loving one another, extending kindness, in humility, considering others as more important than themselves. Wow, this is something that completely transforms a people. This is something that is an exceedingly great gospel witness. Here he also speaks about the dew of Hermon in verse 3 of, of Psalm 133. That dew on plants, on Mount Zion, it makes... Uh, plants flourish, that the dew, especially in the desert, right, there's not much rain, that the dew is the moisture that allows the vegetation to grow. And so also, regarding unity in the church, it's a blessing on the health and life of the church. If there's any, any kind of infighting or dissension or factions within the church, what you'll see each and every time is that the church focuses inside and not outside. Their witness is compromised. And any and every faithful church can and will go through times of disunity. You think about the life of a church, right? At some point, they're going to run into it. And God can use it for good. If anything, if anything, it's so that God's people can understand how much of a blessing it is when there is unity in Christ's church. When they go through difficult times, times of 
dissension, times of disagreement. Oftentimes it works from the top down, just as that oil flows from the top down to the edge of Aaron's garment, right? You think about a family. If, if there's disunity in a marriage, are you going to have disunity in the family? Of course. Of course you will. So also you think about the unity within a church body. Here I'm thankful that I have the privilege of serving with our elder Wayne. And, you know, it's, it's easy for him to be right because he has so many years of experience, right? He just has to wait until I can agree with him and say, hey, I think, Wayne, you're actually right. And we think about the other brothers we have from Cincinnati, that it's, it's a good thing, it's a pleasant thing that men can dwell together in unity, that there's deference given one to another, that we treasure one another, we're thankful for each other, and that we serve well together. Here, he gives a summary there in verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When God blesses his people with unity, it is like a foretaste of heaven. You think about how going to heaven, there's going to be no more arguments. There's going to be uh, no more cold shoulders, right? There's going to be none of these things. And when the church dwells together in, in unity, it is good and pleasant. And it's a foretaste of heaven. Here, think about the, the great testimony to the world. The world doesn't know anything about true unity. It doesn't know the love. It doesn't know the humility. And there's a longing and desire then for something better. For, for them to see people who are so different, but who are united by the love of Christ. That is a great testimony to the world. The world can say, we want that. We covet that. And that is when a fine testimony is, is present. Here we think also about the duty of unity. So first was the blessing of unity, then we had the duty of unity. Keep in mind that this is not a command for Christians to establish unity. We're not called uh, to establish any type of unity. Rather, we're called to, to acknowledge and to maintain, to keep a unity that is already present. There in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Who is that unity? The Holy Spirit. He's the common indwelling Spirit in his people that provides the basis for unity. So it's not as if we need to go out and, and try to establish a unity. We're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is the difference between trying to fix a broken car, so if a car is not running, it doesn't move, it doesn't start, versus you have a fully functional car and you're called to maintain it. Right? The things that you would do to maintain a car are different than the things that you would attempt to do to get it running. Here, we think about how, how we go about keeping or maintaining the unity of the Spirit. We said earlier about how unity is impossible without humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love. So we think about those, those characteristics first and 
How do we keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit? You and I have to ask ourselves regarding humility. Do we constantly think that we are first and we are best or we are most intelligent or most holy? Whenever we have that, there will invariably be disunity. That we have to consider others as more important and better than ourselves. Here, we think again about the concept of a body. No body, for a body, no limb or organ is unto itself. Meaning that if someone says, hey, I'm a hand and I like elbows and biceps, but I don't like legs. No arm functions by itself. If you see any one of these arms that gets severed in a horrible accident, unless it's connected back, if you could attach it to the body again, to that person's body, right? That arm is going to be dead. That there's no Lone Ranger Christians that they will not survive long. Here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We keep and maintain the unity of the Spirit and that we ought to do things without grumbling or complaining. Without grumbling or complaining. You realize, especially for young people, people under the age of 20, right, how counter-cultural that is, right? I mean, just, just the statement, I'm bored, right? You think about how often young people say they're bored, right? As if that becomes the parent's problem, right? That they're bored. Well, fine. This is, in our generation, find something to do, right? To occupy yourself with. Otherwise, we'll start assigning you chores, right? So here, we ought to do everything without grumbling or complaining. We ought to be wary. We ought to be wary of the devil and his deceptions. When you think of the example of Absalom, here, Absalom was trying to foment a rebellion in David's kingdom, his father's kingdom, and he, he went to the city gate, right? And when people came to the gate to, to have their cases heard, that he would sit there and listen, mm, uh, uh, yeah. And then he would say, oh, if only they would make me judge, and then I would give you justice, right? Here, here you think about, isn't this exactly how Satan works? Satan works like this Absalom, right? He, he looks for the people. This is, this is exactly how, how spies in a country are made, right? You think about Sun Tzu and his art of war, right? You find the spies among the people who feel somehow left out or they, they were mistreated. Then, then you get them to spy and, and, and there you have someone from the inside doing the bad work. This is exactly how Satan works. Hebrews 12 verse 15 warns, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Here. You ask the question, if gossip and slander comes to you, why is it that it finds a hearing? It only finds a hearing if you already have the roots of bitterness in your heart. So you say, oh, yeah, you're right. That is because the root of bitterness, meaning that you and I are told to guard from that root of bitterness. So that if someone else comes to us with garbage, that we would say, no, no, we, we, we don't want that garbage, right? If the garbage is already brewing in us, then somehow 
we become like a dump truck, right? And here, we're told that we ought to be careful regarding our own hearts that we do not leave room for this root of bitterness. Be positive. Be a positive influence to others. People go through difficult times. They're in need of encouragement. They're in need of prayer. They're in need of the reminder of the hope of the gospel. Oh, that sounds like a horrible situation. But you realize that the Lord is with us. He can, he can bring us back to, uh, to that straight and narrow path. There is hope in our situation because we have hope in Jesus. This is being a positive influence upon others. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together and is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How important it is that we be a blessing to others. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed. How important that is. That if needed, we confess our sins to one another. We pray for one another that we might be healed. That we guard and keep or we maintain the spirit of unity and that we stop for ourselves asking the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Instead, we start asking the question, how may I be a blessing to others and to the body of Christ? So this is the second point, the duty and blessing of unity. We have the third point, the fruit and evidence of unity. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here we ought to acknowledge that peace and unity have a close tie. Which one comes first? It's a good question. Perhaps there's, there's reason to think that there's peace that produces unity that produces greater peace. So you think about when peace is missing. That there's no peace without. Well, there's no peace without means there's the presence of disunity and discord. And it's the result of having no peace within. So if you have a person who's causing discord and dissension... Right? Oftentimes it's because he has no peace within. And if there's no peace within, isn't this often the result because there is no peace with God? So you, you, you look back at, at these, uh, what are the causes? Right? No peace without is the result of no peace within. No peace within, then it's a question about peace with God. Does the person have peace with God? And we think about how Jesus alone is the one who establishes this peace for us. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one who establishes this peace. That you are justified by his blood. You're justified by faith in him. And because of it, you have peace with God. And having peace with God then... You're able then to have peace with others, to have unity with fellow brothers in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I ask you, have you trusted in this Jesus who alone is your peace with God? If you have not, 
you realize that it is impossible for you to have peace with men. It is impossible for you to have unity with others. Here, we ought to understand also that believers go through difficult times. And that it's a reminder to us that this Lord Jesus is indeed our hope of peace. He is the one who reminds us that he is with us in the difficult times. That he is the one who guides us through every step of the way. That peace, then, is also the outworking of this unity. Peace is not merely a ceasefire. It's not merely an armistice. An armistice is, hey, we agree to put down our arms and stop shooting one another so that we can try to talk about terms of peace. A temporary hiatus of swords, bombs, and bullets doesn't mean that the heart of the sinners have changed one iota. Peace is what happens when sinners begin to obey Christ and serve one another. It's a change of heart. Psalm 34, 14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That we're reminded that God is the one who delights in peace. He delights in peace because he sent his son, our Lord Jesus, to die on the cross on behalf of sinners. That he is the one who establishes this peace between God and man. This is the bond of peace. The bond is what ties someone together. This is the same root word for prisoner, someone who is bound, is this word bond. It's, it's a rope. It's the chain that, that ties people together. And we're told that which ties us together is peace. We read earlier Colossians 3.15. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the peace is what binds us together. Here we think about some of the things uh, that we ought to reflect on as we think about peace and unity with other believers. First is that we ought to be vigilant to the threats to unity among God's people. First in yourself and then in others. Be ready to repent of your own divisive thoughts and instead seek unity among your brothers and sisters in the church. Be ready to encourage, to question, to challenge others. If there is a grumbling heart, if there is a complaining spirit, there are words that divide. Don't give, don't give any harbor to those things. But instead, in love, we're called to, to challenge it, to question it. How often have you heard someone repeating to you some junk about someone else? And if you've mentioned something like, and how did he or she respond to that when you brought it up with him? And, and suddenly there's, oh, I, I haven't, well, hey, that's, this is a challenge. Hey, this is what you're called to do. This is what the world doesn't know. We have some very simple instructions in the scriptures. Is that the world wants to tell everyone but the person who's sinning. Or the person that has, uh, the person with it which you have trouble with. Right? But the scriptures are so simple and so clear, yet for many people so difficult, that if there's an issue, we raise it with them in brotherly love. Here, it's also a reminder that you will never receive the praise and the gratitude that you think you deserve. So for the sake of peace and unity, you and I are to stop expecting it. 
be ready to serve in the lowly tasks, especially when no one is willing to do it and you think no one is watching. God sees all, and he will reward your labors done in faith. Here, we also ought to understand that for the sake of unity, for the sake of Christian growth, that you and I, that we must be able to learn resilience. We must be able to learn resilience, meaning flexibility in the sense that when others rebuke us, when others tell us we're less than perfect, we shouldn't be the opposite, meaning fragile. We should be ready to receive a rebuke and an admonition shared in kindness, that we ought to have the humility to receive it. And if we aren't, if we immediately become defensive, then it tells us we're doing something to harm the peace and the unity of the church. And finally, we say that we ought to be those who give thanks often to the Lord and give thanks also often to those who help us, who are a blessing to us. That thanksgiving is one of the things that help to guard unity. May we go to our God together in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, that by your Spirit there can be unity in Christ's church.